Welcome to Honorverse Today, the Honor Harrington podcast brought to you by TPE Network. Let's be about it. Hello there, Honorverse fans. Welcome to our next thrill-packed, engaging, exciting episode of Honorverse Today. And folks, okay, I really have to apologize. Hopefully you'll forgive us for uh, skipping the next book on our on our last show that was published. I, I, I would like to thank a short little detour into the directly into the mind of David Weber might have been considered worth it. But tonight we're back when we are going to be talking about the 10th book of the main sequence, but really what's the 13th book of the series, War of Honor. Did I introduce Jim and JP? Not yet, but that's okay. We're yeah. What an idiot. That's what comes next. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but I am joined as always by my good friends, Jim Arrowood and JP Harvey. I was just so excited about having David on from our last show that my mind just went off in all odd directions. <laughs> that was pretty cool. It, it, How were you two gentlemen? I'm doing great. Same here. Yeah, it was it was nice having him on. And it was actually at the perfect time. He either had to come right before or right after War of Honor, just from all the kinds of questions we had stacked up. And it was it was perfect. And speaking of that, we you know, he gave us a very generous amount of time as folks know if they listened and um we didn't get through all the questions that we had and that we had from listeners so there'll have to be another one of those and he was gracious enough to offer to come back that's that's one of the reasons why having him before war of honor was such a good good thing to happen because then we we can time it so went so that it really fits in well yeah. with the next shifts of the series. But don't hold back on questions that any of you want to send us. We add them to the list. Um, just because uh-huh. we didn't get through all the questions that we had doesn't mean we're not going to go move on and, and throw some in that are from the, what I'll call the newer content, the stuff we haven't, we haven't covered yet. <laughs> but uh, so, yep. so keep them coming unless you don't have any. And our, our diabolical plan is that when we, get a chance to sync up with him again, we will hit him with as many questions as we can at that time. And who knows, maybe he'll even join us again, again. Mm-hmm. And speaking of uh, generous amounts of time, this book is not going to be a short one. So Jim, I am going to pass this over to you to give us a summary so we can get started tonight. All right. From the back of the book, no one wanted another war. Thomas Theismann didn't. After risking his life and a fresh round of civil war to overthrow the Committee of Public Safety's reign of terror and restore the Republic of Haven's ancient constitution, an interstellar war was the last thing he wanted. Baron Highridge didn't. The Prime Minister of Manticore was perfectly happy with the war he had. No one was shooting anyone else at the moment, and as long as he could spin out negotiations on the formal treaty of peace, his government could continue to 
milk all those hostilities-only tax measures for their own partisan projects. His Imperial Majesty Gustav didn't, now that the fighting between the Star Kingdom and the Havenites had ended, the Andermani Emperor had his own plans for Silesia, and he was confident he could achieve them without a war of his own. Protector Benjamin didn't. His people had made too deep a commitment to the Manticoran alliance in blood as well as treasure for him to want to risk seeing it all thrown away. And Honor Harrington certainly didn't. The salamander had seen the inside of too many furnaces already and knew too much about how much war cost. Unfortunately, what they wanted didn't matter. Well, there it is. And I'll throw the special notes in there. Uh, this one was large, as Raul said. This is an 869-page novel. Depending on which uh, uh, yes, yeah, text that was, you're looking uh, at. As I recall, I try to look up the first, kind of what the first published issue looks like, but it'll, yeah. Variations can happen, terms and conditions apply. Right. Up to like 880. This is the longest book of the entire series, thank God. Yeah, it's a... Uh, it's it's large. Um, published in October of 2002, for continuity, the events in this story appear to occur approximately three years after the events that were captured in the short story from the Highlands in the Changer of Worlds anthology. So that's a reference. And about five years after the uh, last book, uh, the last Harrington. Yes, book. yes. How about some overall impressions? All Can right. To kick us off. I sure will. Uh, a very long book with a major role for Murray the Explainer, of course. <laughs> and and I'll just I'll just add to that that it's okay. I'm not upset with it, or I didn't enjoy it. It was it was really really part of the story. Uh, explained a great deal of things that a person wouldn't get otherwise. Murray didn't get in the way of the story, so you know. It was, uh, but this one was full of D for diplomatic plotting, I for intelligence holes, M for military planning, action, and surprises, and E for economic considerations that could have cost Manticore their very way of life. So, uh, it, it was a great book. I was engaged all the way through it, and, um, they just keep getting better. How how this man that writes these books does this, I'll never know, but uh, outstanding stuff. And I'm going to kick it back to you, JP. Sure. I think you nailed it. A significant amount of dime, the D-I-M-E model, spread throughout the whole book. I also think it was necessary. So there was no distraction provided by Murray or the, you know, the explanations that were given as things unfolded. Uh, Weber does a wonderful job of providing an overview of just how complex the relationships are between domestic politics, domestic economics, foreign policy, alliances, and treaties, and the critical match between government policy and military strategy. There, in this book alone, there's a, there is a legitimate education that happens about these things through this fictional story. For the folks who have read the book, you should forevermore be able to see right past the bumper sticker policy statements that seem to dominate political news. In, I'm talking in the real world. 
mm-hmm. it's often hard to tell if it's because the media doesn't know really what they're talking about uh, or don't think you know or that it doesn't care or doesn't think you care about truly just how complex these things really are. And some of it, at least before the current, and you know, it's been a long time now, but the, the before the 24-hour news cycle, there would be no way for the media to ever try to deep dive into some stuff like this in the real world. But we have a 24-hour news cycle and multiple channels and sources for news, and they still don't do it. So we end up with these what I'll call bumper stickers. Uh, I love that Mr. Weber captures it as well as anyone I've seen and does it frankly, in an entertaining way rather than through the grinding boredom found in most textbooks on these subjects. So uh, high praise for him for taking things that really do matter in the real world and turning that content into a very, truly an exciting and a readable story. How about you, Raul? Well, let, let me let me jump in here also. Jump uh-huh. right in. And, and say, jump. in my overall impressions, this book was like watching a chess match, except it wasn't boring. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, yes, I know. I know what you mean. Yeah. It it was uh, pretty great. Go ahead, bro. Oh, no worries. Okay. I'm going to be, probably be the uh, curmudgeon of the group here because this particular book is a mixed blessing for me. If you've read the short stories, you're fine. Because there's a lot of touchback to uh, the short stories, especially uh, Changer of Worlds. Yeah. Um, If you haven't read at least From the Highlands in Service of the Sword, you're pretty much screwed. I was screwed the first time I read this book. Now, we did learn from our talk with David last time, he wasn't allowed to have a final edit pass before the book had to go to press. As a result, he thought he himself thought it was a bit rough and he would have had a lot of redundancy cut out of the book. That said, the story itself is absolutely fantastic and it makes it easy to overlook uh, the flaws that I mentioned. I'll be bringing on uh, I'll be bringing up a couple of the pieces of those pieces later. This is a reset for the story. The first Havenite War ends, the second Havenite War begins. And we also make a very huge shift from the military-centric to more of the uh, D, the I, and the E of the die model. Uh, in fact, think, think about it this way. How much of Honor's victory over Torville at the end actually takes place off camera? Yeah. So there, there's a huge shift there. And David has taken the time, like Jim said in the, uh, in the dust cover liner, no one wanted this war. David's taken a lot of time over the last several books to make us care about a lot of the Havenites. And here we get to, we get the payoff. Lots and lots of payoff. Uh, what's particularly important is we get a lot of the D, the diplomacy or political, and the information I action from both the Havenite and Manticoran career politicians who are concerned in entirely about what's in it for them and damn everything else let it all go down to flames and what's cool i thought by the way he does that really by storytelling and not just making statements you know Mm -hmm. you and i are making summary statements about what we saw because you know 
that's what we're doing at this point in the in the episode. But he doesn't just declare what we three have just kind of summarized. He tells he lets you see this how it would unfold if these were real people. These are real characters. And he unfolds it through worlds. the relationships. Yes. He Pretty he does awesome. it through the relationships. Yes. Which also brings us directly nicely into a discussion of the characters. Uh, one of the things that I do see some complaints about occasionally is the size of the cast in some of these <laughs> later books, especially a book like this one. Uh, oh, the characters wow. are as much it, a part of the story as the, as the story plot itself. Yeah. And frankly, so I of find our usual five characters, we have seven. Is that what you're saying? Um, no, if you took we a have, look. instead of a dozen, <laughs> instead of a dozen characters, we got 30. <laughs> In this case, you've got several hundred. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, the ones that are worth the ones that just need to be mentioned, I'm going to throw out a name or in some cases, a group of names, and I will let, uh, I will let you gentlemen toss in any comments that you want about them and move on. I may very easily forget someone else's favorite character or character that they think is important in this. But if that's the case, keep in mind, like I said, there are just so many characters. You, you can just spend an entire podcast or actually two just going down the character list. So without uh, much further ado, uh, the first is actually a group. This is what I call the unholy trinity of the High Ridge government. <laughs> Michael Hanvier, Baron Highridge from the Conservative Association, which means, in this case, don't change anything. Stick in the mud crowd. Elaine DeCroix, Marissa Turner from the Progressive Party, Countess Nukiev uh, from the Liberal Party. Uh, th those are the three key movers of the Highridge government. Mm -hmm. uh, One thing that I came up with was these guys are not thinking long-term. Okay. Nope. What can we do to keep our phony jobs? <laughs> okay. Just like, like in the history of the world, mm -hmm. um, you know, so before anything is on paper, as far as they're concerned, the war is over. We can save a lot of, a lot of money and make everybody very happy by. Except they're not going to end the war the because they'll cut off their money. Yeah. So yeah, just, uh, they are three people who do not have a forward looking vision. They are trapped in today. Mm -hmm. The only part I would disagree with is the word trapped. I don't think they're trapped. I think they're willingly trying to s stretch today out as long as oh, they can okay. get away with yeah. it. They walked yeah. into this government that this coalition that Highridge formed with an agenda. It's not like they got there and wondered what they should do next. They had a they had things they wanted to achieve. They also had things they wanted to stop. And mm -hmm. now they're in a position to go for the things they want and stop the things that they don't want. And for um just for clarity, because I might have misunderstood uh you mentioned Countess New Kiev. That is Marissa Turner. Correct. Um, right. Yeah. Elaine DeCroix is the progressive party member and, and Kiev or Melissa, yep. uh, Melissa, Marissa Turner is the liberal party. So interesting. Yep. And we've, Raul, you've mentioned this before, I think a few times. Don't 
look at this and go conservative and identify that with any kind of U.S. domestic political party or progressive or liberal. Um, these are interesting parties that Weber has established, mm-hmm. not just in this book, leading up to this book even, too. They are not exactly right. a copy of anything that that we we can't point at any one party Certainly not in the U.S. and go, well, that's the liberals or that's the conservatives or that's the the progressive. He's talking about it. He's talking about it more in classical terms. Yes. What classical progressivism is as far as progressive socialism, liberal, the liberal party. And we, we actually see that play out uh, sort of a, in fact, it was kind of a funny contrast the way. Modern liberalism plays out against uh, classical liberalism within the liberal party. That was one of when I almost that almost became one of my plot point yeah. favorite plot points. In fact, so so got off the character as you said to, to make that point though that um, mm-hmm. these are not. I think sometimes, and I'm being very careful myself to not let things get spoiled. But uh, as we've gotten 13 books into this. It's it's very clear, and I think some of the critics of David, it it's not clear for them that they they suggest he's somehow tightly coupling things that are in here to very very narrow things that we see in our own lives. Mm-hmm. And while there may be some overlap because of the way the story is told, I don't think he's necessarily trying to champion a particular viewpoint or perspective in its entirety that's held by a political party in the real world or not it it's a cool combination and you, and it makes the politics and the honorverse interesting because you see you see alliances and differences happening yep. politically that are are cool and messy at the same time but you can't and this is actually going to be part of my takeaway oh, okay that that, yeah. I, that i'll be bringing I'm up again be quiet then yeah but oh no worries um, no worries we do have a lot of characters yes, to get through yes, though so sorry next being sir edward janicek he's once again first lord of the admiralty and apparently he didn't learn anything at all from past experience and frankly in my opinion he is every bit as much of a coward as Pavel Young was, and probably more so. Can't argue with that. Yeah. Nope. Nope. He he screwed the pooch so badly that uh, whether or not there's going to be a manticore in a few years is completely up in the air, and instead of trying to do something about it, he committed suicide. Yeah. And speaking of a Steph- uh, Pavel Young reference, uh, Stefan Young, his brother, is now Earl of North Hollow, and... My God, hmm. to think that you could actually wish that Pavel was still around. Yeah. Incompetent, stupid, utterly forgettable if it weren't for the North Hollow Files and his wife. Yeah. Speaking of which, Georgia Sacristos, did anyone see the plot twist coming with her? No. I can't, you know, I can't say I did. We, we've been seeing her as the brains behind the North Hollow po- uh, power base for a while now, but... Uh, she is currently now on the run from the Audubon Ballroom, which unfortunately only means something if you've actually read the short story. Right. Mm-hmm. Arnold Giancola, not to be outdone by the manticore and slime I've already mentioned, uh, Arnold's managed to do almost as much harm or as much harm all by himself with maybe a little bit uh, help from his brother and Ives uh, Grossclaw. 
But uh, speaking of slime, what finally happens to him is worth waiting and seeing. <laughs> okay. Zahu Pach, Graf von Sternhofen. Uh, we don't want to forget the uh, Andermani amongst our collection of idiots here. And I'm starting with the, it, the more or less idiots. He manages to dig a hole for the Empire that they only managed to avoid because of uh, the relationship between Chin Lu and Honor. Yeah. And speaking of Chin Lu Anderman, Vern Bon, Herzog von Robinstrange, I love it every time he shows up. <laughs> I, I could make favorite plot points or quotes out of uh, pretty much every appearance he makes in the stories. Mm -hmm. So in this case, I intentionally didn't, but I love the way he handed uh, Sternhofen his uh, biscuits yes. on a platter. <laughs> it was satisfying. Yes, it was. Gustav XI. You know, I don't think we ever actually meet the current Andermani emperor in this story but he has a lot of impact as a mover and shaper it's just entirely off camera thank god for timothy zahn because we will get uh a, he sort of becomes david weber's expert on andermani stories uh -huh. and when we get to one of the pre one of the two prequel books will the, the one that he does I will see a lot of the Andermani Empire. So if you like, if you like them, you've got some good stuff to look forward to. Let's move to the not so slimy people. In fact, the people we actually like for a while. Ah, <laughs> uh, Eloise Pritchard. You know, if I remember correctly, I did tell you guys to keep an eye on her. Mm -hmm. uh, thoughts about her as president? I got mixed feelings uh, about her. I, oh, I like her. I think. She wants to do what's right, but she's one of those people that if you back her into a corner, watch out, which is exactly what High Ridge did. He backed the Havenites. And Giancola, in, too. He backed the Havenites into a corner, and they had no choice but to come out swinging. Mm-hmm. So, JP, what were your mixed feelings? Well, I think I haven't seen enough of her to to trust her. I like what she's doing. But I was left with a little bit of caution in the back of my head about about her. I, I then like, you're exactly where David Weber wants you. Yeah. Well, that's good. I mean, I, yep. I like how she ends up in the position she's in, and how that happened makes me default to wanting to trust her. But I just there's so much baggage in that in in Haven that I it's for me it's kind of a wait and see. You you are exactly where you're supposed to be, and I will not say anything else about the character. Uh, you, you're you're go you're going to enjoy. You're really go going to both of you enjoy the way this yeah. arc develops. And it, I guess, that reinforces what you told us, right? Keep an eye on her. Mm -hmm. Yep, and you still need to keep an eye on her. Thomas Tiesman and Dennis Lepick, now Secretary of War and Attorney General. Uh, Tiesman's actually a sort of a the George Washington figure for Haven uh, without actually taking the presidency, something I believe George Washington actually wanted to avoid, but couldn't. Mm -hmm. Right. What everybody thought could happen. And, and Oh, by the way, I'm talking about, I'm talking about Theisman. Um, yes. The people that we are exposed to seem very cautious that 
is this guy just another, you know, a military version of the same thing that they've now gone through for years? Mm -hmm. We know that he has, he has very different motives in what he's doing. So it's, I, I think that's a cool comparison to George Washington, but without taking the presidency. In fact, he deliberately Mm -hmm. avoids becoming the president. And you know, there's kind of a, there's, and I know this is off historically, but it just kind of puts me to mind the second Havenite Manticorn War kind of puts me to mind to, in some ways to the War of 1812. I don't know if that makes sense or not. I hadn't really thought about it. But, I, and I, re- I, re- I really don't know why I, I would have to really dig in and put a finger on it. And in you know, some very important ways, it very much does not yeah. at all. And again, that'll go into some of my takeaways. Javier Giscard, Lester Tourville. Two more that we've come to really like mm-hmm. and, and respect. Uh, neither of those two have their best days, but thank God they survive. I, I wouldn't want to lose either of them. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, I almost feel sorry for Javier just pulled out and knew it's like, okay, there's no chance here. We're, I'm getting out of here. And the, Jim, I'm sure I'll cover this in the story part. Uh, I, I kind of feel sorry for Lester Tourville because he got paid back in spades yeah. where honor with his encounter with honor <sighs> shannon foraker got a bit of a promotion it seems huh that was nice yeah yep. it was everyone's favorite tech witch oh and she's just gone absolutely crazy with look what i get to play with <laughs> <laughs> yeah she's gone to kind of sonia hemphill in some ways except with a little less baggage yeah typical engineer so, fair to say a little less horrible That'd be an interesting combo, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. my. Yeah. Alfredo, you and Warner Caslett. Honors Ace up her sleeve, as it turns out, though uh, the protector really didn't give her much choice in the matter yeah. there, doesn't it? Yeah. Everyone seems to forget Honors as much of a Grayson as she is a Manticorin, except for the Graysons, of course. Yeah. We're reminded of it, though, in this book. Like, it, that's an important thing. It's a very important thing, fact, and, it may be, and in more ways than just militarily. Yes. Uh, well, well, we'll come. I, I think we're going to end up coming back to that. So. Yep. You know, I finally get around to mentioning Honor Harrington. Yeah. You know, so, sometimes it seems like it's two steps forward and one step back for her. Uh, and there, there's some baggage and insecurities that she just can't seem to overcome. And and this will be actually one of my plot points. That, that I like about it. It's sort because of a, a lot of a cool hearkening like, back to the beginning of all this, where we met a young yeah. Honor Harrington who had some baggage and mm-hmm. some things she was struggling to get over. And now we have a more yep. mature Honor Harrington. That's still carrying some of that yes. damage, some of that yep. battle damage along with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why I get so annoyed with people who try to brush her off as a Mary Sue. A Mary Sue character doesn't, isn't that kind of damaged. She's, one that persevere honors one that perseveres in spite of it benjamin mayhew and at the risk of uh, ri- at the risk of our g rating that's one sneaky little bastard <laughs> you cannot but love him it's like he he's determined to save manticore mm-hmm. from itself he he loves manticore he needs the ally he loves honor he loves elizabeth mm-hmm. and he's got a navy and he's not afraid to use yeah. it yeah. enough said <laughs> Michelle Hankey, Honor's best friend. In, in this particular book, uh, she's sort of the stand-in for Murray 
at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, a, a sounding board and a mechanism for uh, a mechanism for some of the exposition needed. I did peek through our notes, so I know Jim's going to be bringing her up a little later. <laughs> which is actually one of the main reasons I made sure she made that she was a late addition to this list. Also on the list is Elizabeth Winton, who is one of Honor's best friends. She just happens to be the queen of the kingdom of Manticore on her day job. <laughs> yep. I got to say, okay, thought, thoughts on Elizabeth. In, in a lot of ways, her hands are tied. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, all of this business that's going on, you know, with the label on it, the proper label on it, her government, uh, it, oh man, she has to be aging, you know, at, at twice the speed of a normal person mm-hmm. yep. because of all, all of this. And I like, by the way, how we've watched that relationship between honor and Elizabeth grow. I just think Weber's done an awesome job with that. Like honor, there is no doubt who's who in the zoo politically, but yeah. they are also friends. And I, and it's neat. I like how, I like how that was not done sloppily over the course of these books. No, no. And almost be, ended up being one of my quotes, but th- there are so many good quotes in this that you, you couldn't pick everything. Uh, when honor finally returns to Manticore, private little, uh, visit you know landing ceremony Mm -hmm. and queen elizabeth's first reaction is to throw herself in honor's arms with a huge bear hug yeah and honor doesn't know what else to do but hug back yeah the other way i guess i could think to put this is their relationship is believable to me anyway it's not absolutely oh really and now honor and elizabeth are friends huh how convenient nope Uh, that has evolved in a believable way Mm-hmm. Over 13 books. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, Wesley Matthews needs to be mentioned, the High Admiral of Grayson. Yeah. Mostly important because of Hamish Alexander. And I have a big blank here on my notes for Hamish Alexander because I don't know what to say. He, oh, yeah. We'll just let the discussion. I mean, he's he's key to a lot that goes on in this book, but he's not a... He's not an in-our-face character in all of these no. hundreds of pages, but what he does in here is important. You said coupled to Matthews, and those coupled two, to Matthews. and Honor, and Protector Benjamin. That Those four, what's happening between them is important. Yeah, But Hamish is, is not in our face in this book. He's sort of a supporting character. Even but, though even though he's, a, he's central to everything. Yes. From the scandals to honor being in Silesia to the movement of the tr- the movement of uh, the Grayson home fleet mm-hmm. to save their biscuits, uh, Trevor Starr. There could be a second version of parts of this book that were written from his perspective. It would be a whole. It'd be the same story, yep. but it would be a very different view of what was happening. But that's not what we got, and that's okay, mm-hmm. by the way. Yes, and. Uh, from Hamish Alexander, we get to Emily Alexander, and finally get to meet <laughs> Hamish's wife, yeah, uh, who turns out to be the political mastermind of the Alexander family. I like her. Mm-hmm. I love that character. That's actually one of David Weber's favorite characters in the books, in, in this story from what uh, I have gathered from him. Oh. And she's a, she is a quiet powerhouse. Yeah. 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 And, and you, you want to feel sorry for her for just, you know, for the physical mess that she's found herself in. Yeah. I'd almost say 
I feel like I'm supposed to feel sorry for, but but I don't. But you can't. I don't feel sorry for. Her. She's she is such awesome as she is. Yeah. Exactly. She is such a powerful, confident woman that there's no you can't feel sorry for her. Yeah, I I was gonna say self confidence. Yeah. Is mm-hmm. is her major strength. I yep. I to me it's abundantly clear how Hamish and Emily are a couple. They they match each other so well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he's and he's obviously a power player, even though we just got done saying he's not a he's not a primary character, at least by volume in this book. He does important things in here, but man, Hamish yeah. and Emily, like they do two halves of the same coin or two two peas yep. in a pot you know, or whatever metaphor you want to pick. Frankly, I should have mentioned Samantha in my list uh, of characters as well, because uh, Nimitz's wife is, it it seems Samantha and Emily get a really good bond by the end of the, and I don't mean a tree cat adoption bond. I mean an honest friendship bond by the end of the book. Uh, Samantha is very much a mover and shaker in this story uh, from a background perspective. Highlighted again by one of the short stories, you get some real depth into that Mm -hmm. back to our encouragements to our friends out there that hang out with us in this podcast. If you're not reading the short stories, you're missing important content. Yeah. Um, and we're going to see tree cats, tree cats becoming a little more ascendant in, uh, the political structure as the story progresses. So that's not exactly, you know, the, the development. And I said this at the very beginning, there is a development in the role of the tree cats that is very slow and very deliberate, but it's absolutely there. What do they make up the and... celery lobby? <laughs> <laughs> the celery party. Um, oh boy. I, the, I keep that in mind when we start reading the prequel. Oh, you, we saw a little of that in uh, a beautiful friendship, yes. the short story. Okay. Just wait till we get to the books. Fair enough. Will work for celery. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy Montaigne and Anton Zilwicky, uh, two extremely important characters going forward, especially in the uh, Crown of Slave series, but also in the main in the honor arc. Is well, actually all three arcs, to be honest. It's she, Kathy in particular, is another character I really like. Uh, yes, uh, Anton as well, but I like I. I'm really anxious to see more, more Kathy. of Kathy. What I th- and I mentioned this the la- last time we talked about her. I think it was during one of the anthologies that I feel like she she has a lot of stuff to do that matters to us as the readers. And I'm yep. I'm because I have no clue what that could be. I speculated on at least one thing when we talked about her the last time. But uh, well, just, we saw a bit of it as she's basically yes. taking over the Liberal Party. Yeah, and she's kind of okay. I, 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 I forgive me for interjecting some of my own personal belief. She's bringing liberalism in the kingdom back to what it's supposed to be right. from the context of classical liberalism. Yes. Yeah, she's she's reforming from inside the party, and it's not a pleasant walk for her. Mm-hmm. And her relationship I, with Anton is just—it's I love, yeah, I love this. I can't wait it's to a see lot of where these, where they, these two go. Uh, some cool stuff there. I want, I want more. There wasn't enough in this book, so I guess 
Thank goodness there's more. All books. I will say is you're going to be satisfied, but as a teaser, I will say let's don't forget to add Victor Kashan to that blend. Yeah. He, yeah. Him and, and uh, who's the other guy? There was a, anyway. It, yeah. Well, I'm just going to well, wait. You'll, you'll because get there. There was, there was another character associated with Victor that. Uh, yes. I, uh, I have some yes, trepidation about, about those guys, but we got enough of those of them that they're going to, there's going to have to be more coming. Right. And he's part. Uh, yeah. And I can't, I, like I said, I'm drawing a, I'm drawing a brain blank at the moment because he's part of, uh, he's part of president Prichard's uh, cabinet. In fact. Yeah. Uh, cause that was mentioned anyway, moving on, uh, captain Zachary doctors, wicks and care, the whole harvest joy team. Yeah. That was almost a separate side story of its own with the new, uh, with the uh, seventh wormhole junction. Mm-hmm. We're going to see more of the. I love that exploratory sense of them. So that that's one of the reasons why I had to mention them here. Uh, Task Force Thirty Four. I, I th- there's just no way to pull out individuals in honors Celestian command because it's such a thorough collection of the usual suspects. In fact. It's not an accident that it's a thorough collection of the usual <laughs> suspects because Honor storms her way into the Admiralty and pretty much lays down the law. If you don't give me this entire list, I'm out of here. Right. That was awesome. Yes. It, yes, it was. Just a couple footnote characters, but I have to point out the Easter eggs. Uh, Governor Zelazny. Hmm. And a character named Tim Zahn. Hmm. hmm. <laughs> just, just cute little touches that, that I love pointing out. Yeah. Locations, organizations absolutely have to be mentioned here. The Salasian Confederacy, which by the end of this book really isn't anymore because the Andermani and the Manticorans seem to solve their problems by more or less dividing it up between yeah. themselves. Who's surprised? <laughs> yeah, not me. No. Sidemore Station, which is basically Honor's base of operations in Silesia. So Marsh actually takes on a bit more of a role now. Uh, when, when we saw that happen, I guess, in the, what, the third or fourth book, it's back, it's grown. We've got the Republic of Haven and the Star Kingdom of, of Manticore, of course, and... I'll bring it up in uh, further down, further down in plot points, but a little bit of role reversal here. Uh, Operation Bolt Hole. <laughs> Shannon's home. Shannon's now an admiral, and she's got her own base and all the toys she wants to play with. Oh yeah. The Andermani Empire, of course, plays a crucial role. The Audubon Ballroom has to be mentioned because yes. it played. It, it was just mentioned once. We'll give you a three-day head start before we tell the uh, ballroom where you're at. <laughs> if you've read the short stories, you already know Jeremy X. Uh, a lot of people think of them as a terrorist organization, and there's an argument for that based on their tactics, except they are very specific in who and what they target, and they will not target innocent people at all. In fact, that's a good way to end up next on their list is to do something that is unsanctioned and cause harm to innocents. So collateral damage is verboten for the, for the ballroom. Links, the location of the seventh now, Manticorn Wormhole Junction. 
This is going to be extremely important going forward. I don't know if you got the hint of that or mm-hmm. not, but I assume it is going the amount to be- of time that it and it wasn't a ton, but the amount of time that was spent on on that seventh junction, yep, was I thought was making it pretty clear. Like, eat this appetizer. There's there's a main course coming down the road. It's as important as because uh, Kathy and Anton and the ballroom were sort of the same way. Mm-hmm kind of fit that same uh state and yes links is just as important as that we also have the solarian league and uh mesa slash manpower you know there's a lot of little references the league and mesa and i know jp has point has been scratching his head about this over past books yeah uh, they seem to be hovering in the background as if they're going to play a really important role as we move forward as Arsenio Hall used to put it, things that make you go, mm. that's right. <laughs> uh, the second battle of Marsh, the one clear victory for Manticore out of Avon's uh, Operation Thunderbolt. Its importance is not just for the military victory, but the inspiration for the Star Kingdom to get back on its feet. And the other sort of victory was Trevor Star, though no battle was fought, and that's because Giscard was smart enough to uh, pack up and run when he realized the degree of reinforcements it had. Yeah. <sighs> and those are the characters, places, things, organizations that I thought needed to be brought up. There's obviously more, but my voice is wearing out, and I am more than happy to pass this over to Jim now oh. for uh, a discussion of the story. Okay. So... We'll just start here and, you know, interrupt or, or jump in whenever you feel like it. It has been five years since the truce between Manticore and Haven ending the first Havenite Manticoran War. There is still no formal treaty between these two powers because of foot dragging mostly on the part of the Manticoran Prime Minister and his cabinet. This and other political circumstances threaten a sparking of renewed hostilities. Yeah. You get this. That, that no formal treaty. Yeah. Basically, it's an excuse to keep the taxes. Yeah. You get this feeling of a dark cloud hanging off in the horizon. So, you know, you, you kind of know uh, stuff is going to hit the proverbial fan as time goes on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The technical term for this is an armistice. Right. Ah. Okay. All right. The war's not over, but there was an agreement. The war's not to, over, to stop. but they can, yeah. they, they can, uh, they're, they're trying to milk it for all they can before either a treaty is signed or they have to face an election because they're afraid they're going to get plastered in the election. Yeah. Okay. The High Ridge government is working to strengthen their own political position. They have cut the Royal Manticoran Navy's budget to bolster welfare projects and political finance schemes. Manticore's allies, including Grayson and Erewhon, are not at all happy with the High Ridge government's ineptness in their handling of foreign affairs. When Honor and Hamish voice their opinion to these policies of the government, High Ridge and his cronies plot to discredit the two war heroes. Mm Mm-hmm. Namely, Honor and Hamish. Right. Two of the best people to have on your side. Yep. 
<laughs> yeah, unless and, they run counter to your your agenda, in which case they're a, a problem. And they do it by exploiting Honor's history and her history and her baggage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they do it successfully with the with a scandal, uh, an affair scandal that hasn't happened. In fact, they pick that because that's the one thing that Honor has actually made it an effort to avoid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Haven struggles to rebuild. We're going to move over to the other side now. Following the fall of the People's Republic, the legally elected President Pritchard faces pressure from other political factions led by Arnold Giancola. Uh, demanding more assertiveness in her negotiations with Manticore. Admiral Thomas Theismann works to restore the Navy's morale and fighting capabilities through a secret program called Bolt Hole. Admiral Shannon Foraker does her part by directly running the program, building ships with capabilities to match those of the Manticorans. You know, and I gotta say, I, lo- I love Shannon's approach. And I like the way you phrased it, Jim. Ah. Capabilities to match. She's not trying to catch... Well, she's trying to do as much catch-up as she can. She's not trying to match their technology. She's trying to find ways to match the capabilities of of what they can do. And that is a really important distinction. Yeah. Tying this to the last couple of points to uh, get it out there now in case we don't come back to it. It's interesting, you know, the the back of the book says nobody wants another war. I think the the Manticoran leadership, the current government, believes they're in a position that there will not be another war. Mm. And yep. they're exploiting the fact that they're technically in a state of war to take care of things that really are counterproductive because they are at war. They're still at war. Um, so they're taking that approach. They don't. They certainly don't want another war. They want to take advantage of of the technical state of war to do other things. On the side of the Havenites, most of them don't want a war. But in my opinion, there are a there is a person or maybe a couple of people who are taking what Shannon is doing and working themselves into an argument or a position that they hold. That is, when we go back to war. We're going to get the stuff back we lost when we, and it sneaks in. It was really well done when they're saying things almost like this, right? Well, we, you know, we don't want to go back to war, but we have these options. And one of them is going back to war. And as the people who keep bringing that up move through the book, they, they basically make the argument to themselves and then accept it that, well, really, we only have one choice and that's to go back to war. The, yeah. And the that's cool one of the part- things Giancola manipulates yes uh he he manipulates it rather ruthlessly he he's thinking he's thinking he can bring that he can push things up to the point of just before the first shots get fired and ride in to be the hero mm-hmm. and take over the power it's a similar mm-hmm. mindset to what we saw in um short and victorious war mm-hmm. i i'm gonna yep. I intend to be back at war or to be at war, but I'm going to make sure that everybody sees it's not my fault. And and here's yes. what I love about this book is that Manticore is handing them all the ammo they need for it not to be 
their, meaning the Havenites, fault. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. they're, yeah. they are using and abusing those circumstances, and they're rightfully angry about what they're seeing. But they're using, they being one or two people, are building the case to use those as the excuse to be back at war. And that's what makes this whole thing yep. so horribly dangerous. Mm-hmm. And the, the biggest difference between short victorious war and this is short victorious war shots were intended to be fired. Yes. In this book, the the belief is by those for whatever by those politicians, the belief by those politicians is, well, we're smart enough to control things so it doesn't get back to shooting. We can take right. it out right up to the very edge and everyone will understand just how clever we are. Yes. And there's, there's a, lo- there's a lot of that side on, and Havenite side going on. Yep. There's a lot on of that on the on the side of the Manticorans. There is a healthy amount of that, but less on the side of the Havenites. And mm-hmm. and obviously mm-hmm. we're gonna see how that works as as we get to the end of the book. But Yeah. And then one thing that runs through my mind as we go through this little game between Manticore and Haven is I know what Elizabeth the third wants. She wants Haven crushed and taken yep. completely off the table. So can you imagine the frustration she's experiencing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So moving along. Meanwhile, the Andermani empire takes on a confrontational stance with Manticore because of the chaos in the Silesian Confederacy. Honor is sent to the planet Sidemore in the Mars system near Silesian space with a task force to police the situation, so she is told. She has actually been sent there by the High Ridge government to keep her out of the political arena. Tension on the Manticoran Andermani border is on the rise. Yeah, the, the intent there is for Honor to fail, actually. At best, yeah. to fail, yeah. or at worst, to fail. At best, to get killed. Yeah, they, they, they just want her out of the way, period. So, hey, go do this. Get out of here. Don't bother yeah, me. There's no hiding that they don't like. They don't like her personally, and they don't like her politically, and they don't like her military experience either. They, yeah. they think she is, re- she is and, reckless. Mm-hmm. And they'll abuse the system in any way possible to get her out. Yeah. And that goes much. back to Jim, you had pointed out, or Raul, one of you guys did that, you know, she storms into the Admiralty and says, I, I'll go off and do the thing you're asking me to do, but here's who needs to be with me. They were the resistance to that, frankly, normal thing for uh, somebody at that level to be granted. The resistance to that was because of what we all just said. They want mm-hmm. her to fail. Yes. Mm-hmm. Engineered failures don't always work out like you plan. Nope. <laughs> All right. A new terminus of the Manticoran wormhole junction creates tension between them and Haven. Haven fears the Manticorans will go on an expansionist spree as a result. Highridge continues with his delay tactics, causing Giancola to gather more support, while he also encourages the Andermani to annex Silesia. There are shooting incidents that inflame hardliners on both sides. Pritchard becomes desperate to finalize a peace treaty before she loses her political credibility. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. It, and it's not just the, it's not just Haven who's concerned with the expansion and expansion into, uh, into the, uh, new terminus, uh, the Talbot cluster. And like I've already mentioned, this is going to be a very important point going as as the story progresses forward. The ineptitude of the high Ridge government and a scheme perpetrated by Giancola compound the already unstable situation and Pritchard sees no other option than to order the Navy to launch Operation Thunderbolt. Combat operations resume against Manticore, and the retaking of systems lost in the previous war begins. The only people who seemed to not understand how unstable everything was was our 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 amazing trinity of incompetence on the Manticoran side. They seemed to genuinely think that they just had all this under control. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I would say Giancola was equally inept on, yeah, on his yeah, side and underestimating. Sure. Yeah. He certainly underestimated Pritchard. Yeah. He, they forgot her background. Yeah. And this is the part of the book, isn't it, where we learned that he, uh, he was editing messages that were going to yes. Manticore. Mm-hmm. Oh, yep. wow. You know, it was like, oh, no. What's this guy doing? <laughs> it happens. The, it, it it happens in the real world. We oh, know yeah. this. Well, and and here he is trying to build himself up at the expense of how many lives? Right, uncountable lives, millions so, of lives in this case. Yeah, but those are just statistics. He he he's the political class. He's the political class and the elite. All those lives you're talking about are just statistics. Yeah, cannon that's, fodder. It doesn't yeah. hurt him. That that's really what it kind of comes down to. And I mean, it, well, read history. Oh well, yeah, yep. All right. In a series of coordinated attacks, the Havenites succeed in taking back every system lost to the Manticorns, except for Trevor's Star. The Grendelbane Station shipyard is scuttled. Honor's fleet is attacked, but she fights a victorious battle with the help of the Graysonite Navy. The High Ridge government falls, the First Lord of the Admiralty commits suicide, and a new government is formed under Whitehaven's younger brother, William Alexander. Hamish himself is appointed First Lord. Now, so we've got this, the messages got edited, they got sent back, Trevor Starr was a point of contention that if that had been settled, that one thing had been settled, that would have been, yep. That would have been the end of hostilities. Yeah. Nothing to fight about. And that was the point. That was the parts that Giancola was editing. Yes. Yeah. Were, were the parts about Trevor Starr. Cause yes. they were willing uh, to concede it to bring permanent peace. Actually, they were willing to concede all of the other systems Bait from the perspective of let those systems vote, yes. let them have a vote. Do we stay in the Do we stay in the Republic, or do we want to be independent? Right. Yeah. Haven was willing to give them that. Yes. Meaning, give the systems that, and Giacola was doing some creative editing and trying to justify it for himself. Well, yeah. you know, actually, it wasn't all that creative because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it was one 
little word. And that At is the end po- of the day. That is pointed out earlier in the book. So you're sitting there going, what word? What word? And you're trying to figure it out before you get there. What one three letter word was left out. And you find out you find out later later, of course. Yep. Okay. In the aftermath, Manticore and Haven are nearly equal in technological development, and Haven has a vast advantage in the number of modern warships. Erwan breaks away from Manticore and sides with Haven, while Gustav the Eleventh chooses to side with Manticore. So now we're lining up for more fun and games. Mm-hmm. So, over to you, yep. JP. And, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, and let's not forget, Samantha solves seems to solve the problem with uh, our love triangle. <laughs> yes. <laughs> love triangle. <laughs> all right jp almost k-drama quality almost k-drama level <laughs> all right jp let's talk about some themes well we mentioned dime several times already so that's there it's all over the book um alliances and at least one example of what i'll call an uncontrollable ally i have a little more on that <laughs> later <laughs> but uh, among other things that Weber may have been trying to communicate through science fiction here is something that I think was a part of why America, meaning early America in particular, struggled so much with entering what were perceived as or referred to as entangling alliances. Mm. Alliances are, are two-edged swords, and we see a lot of that, a lot of it in this book in particular between um, Manticore and Grayson, but, but others mm-hmm. as well, like Jim, you just mentioned, we, we watched some one side, one player move from one side to the other, another one to choose a side, but these, these alliances are, are interesting and we get a dose of both, both edges of that sword in here as a theme, I think wishful thinking, uh, I'll add this, as the final theme, we'll call the theme policy, but wishful thinking doesn't constitute policy and it doesn't end wars. Definitive actions do. A lot of wishful thinking and near zero definitive action surfaces from Manticore and we obviously saw the consequences of what ultimately came from that uh, wishful thinking yep. is, for, is, for not, his- is just not the way to proceed ahead with any kind of policy domestic or foreign mm-hmm. for as much of damage for as much as Giancola was responsible. Basically he was able to do what he did because as you said, Manticore, the high Ridge government gave him everything he could ask yes. for in order to do what he did. Yeah. Yep. So those are the themes I identified. I don't know if you guys saw any others that are, worth mentioning but those were the big ones to me i i, I think the, i think those were the big ones yeah if we tried to break it down with dime we'd be here till for yes next week <laughs> and you found out from your conversation with, with the talk with uh david that he's intentionally using yes uh dime model yeah well it's not it, an uncommon I'll, nope. I'll word that better it is a common tool to use to to kind of pick apart problems 
or to explain things. It's not flawless, but it's a good model. In my mind, I, I of course, knew nothing about Dime before you mentioned it, JP, but what really is really cool in my mind is how you picked up on that without without it ever being mentioned. I I just admire the heck out of you for that, among other things. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just a simple guy. It's a simple model, so... A union, a good union there. Yeah, you learned your lessons well, though, let me tell you. <laughs> I think there was one more theme that ended up being prevalent that might be worth mentioning because it showed up from everything from the nation perspective, from the national perspective of the two star nations down to personal levels. Um, and that's actions have consequences. Yeah. Yep. I, th- I think that was that was the the consequences of actions. Yeah, and both positive and negative. Mm. Yeah, I mean we 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 see that in obviously what we've just been talking about with the dime model. We see that again in the relationships in honors relationships. We we see that throughout. Oh yeah. So I think from there we let's go ahead and turn it over to some plot points then. If, there's no more discussion on themes, Jim. Okay. As I read along, it uh, came to the point where the Havenites and Manticorns were sending diplomatic notes back and forth. President Pritchard's opponent in the legal elections was making edits to the correspondence between them, as as we mentioned before, in the text. Uh, but in the text, it, it uh, talked about how Giancola took a very short, note sent to clarify the Havenite position on Trevor's stars and let them know they had no interest that in that location. Uh, this one little point was changed by him by taking out a single word from the dispatch, uh, and it told High Ridge the exact opposite. Okay, That one word spark, um, sparked the beginning of the second Manticorn-Havenite war, I love the way David set this up in one chapter and left us hanging for three long chapters before it got resolved. <laughs> I mean, it was a brilliant and fun plot twist. Yeah, you, the word not. Yeah. <laughs> okay, over to you, JP. Well, it's not a good thing in the story or in the real world when this happens, but neither side of the... I mean, Manticoran Havenite truce is really talking to the other. And late in the story, one side tried to genuinely talk to the other, but it was probably too little too late. The war hadn't ended, but Manticor in particular wanted to act like it has in one sense, therefore allowing them to do this dramatic reduction of the Navy and shift the funds from the Navy to domestic programs, but also ensuring the public understands that the war is still on in an attempt to maintain those wartime taxes. So we're at war, but we're not at war. The uh, significant manipulation of the environment that they're in for, for reasons that were kind of disingenuous. There's definitely correspondence happening between Manticore and Haven, but even in that, except for late in the game, nothing was really being said. And that was highlighted with Manticore in particular, where they were just, saying words that sounded like they had meaning. And we watched the frustration of the Havenites as they get messages and they're like, this 
What does this mean? As I recall, the coalition government under High Ridge is generally of the same school of thought as our buddy Reginald Hausman, which is essentially my summary mm-hmm. of it is wars are, are never necessary. Military people are thugs. Talking and diplomacy can prevent armed conflict. And that sort of paints the picture then of why these guys <laughs> were just so confident in their intent uh, and in their lack of words. And it goes back to what I said earlier about, about good intentions don't, that, that's not, that's not policy. Act deliberate statements and actions are what help express or explain policy. So we'll see how they do. So are you uh, saying and, and the non-spoiler alert is they, they fail. <laughs> are you saying that this kind of reinforces the old adage, uh, good intentions pave the road, the road to hell? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it can certainly reinforce that. <laughs> oh, uh, as for me, I'll call what we see in this story, an example of, this is in air quotes, the flatulence school of foreign policy. <laughs> oh, <laughs> what a way to put it. You can run with that however you want. But as okay. a result, there are a lot of assumptions driving policy decisions, and those are heavily seasoned by personal political agendas and preferences, as well as outright falsehoods, which are being fed to the citizenry on both sides. By the way, that Uh, By that, I don't mean informed personal opinions and viewpoints held by a particular politician within the context of the greater good of each nation. The driving personalities in this case are themselves driven by what appears to be their own selfish craving for power, for personal power within their own political Mm -hmm. worlds. Everyone else, allies and enemies, can be damned. These people are, are all about themselves. As a result, Erewhon is considering and then does switch sides and allying with Haven. Grayson is in the unfortunate position of not fully understanding where it stands with Manticore. And it's, and it's really not good in terms of that uncertainty and having what I referred to earlier as an uncontrollable ally that may very well drag them into a war they don't want back to the back of the book, right? The consequences of that can't, can't be good. Um, what Mike had drawn out here is that there's a subtle but very long additional storyline or a plot point that I suspect is actually the larger plot point, but not in this book. And that has it's tracking us back to this whole genetic slave trade thing. Um, remember, and that's why I'm intrigued by Anton and Kathy, those those two characters in particular. Remember, that's what's being addressed before all the chaos was unleashed in this book. It started with Operation Wilberforce and trying to get arms around and wreck the slave trade. Mm -hmm. turned into another war. So if I'm right, Mm -hmm. uh, David, I think, has done a fantastic job setting the hook, but not really making it clear that we've been hooked for (laughs) more coming about that. Slavery was a tiny slice of this big book, and I really am kind of wondering if this book is really a huge setup for that storyline uh, in the future. I love <laughs> well it. Well said. Crown of Slaves and well Saginaw <laughs> Island, both. So, Raul, it's and your turn. JP, you, mm-hmm. you, uh, you 
helped me figure some figure out the uh, 1812 war. It was the weird okay. dynamics between France, UK, and US. Yeah. And and there's just a familiarity between that and Grayson Manticore Haven. I mean, a lot of the circumstances were different, but the, the, there was, you know, the, there's just that dynamic. There were just some strange dynamics, you know, some interesting yeah. dynamics between all three. And I think that's where I think that's where I was seeing it. I wonder if we is that a is that a question we add to ask uh, David Weber about sometime? Did he consider the War of eighteen twelve as an influence? I don't know because the actual the, the actual past you know the actual events themselves were were so different. Yes. Yep. Totally different. But it did come to mind, and what you said makes sense. Mm-hmm. So hmm. okay. Anyway, for my, yeah. for my plot yeah. points, and this the first one that is more of a plot construct than a point. I really liked, you know, that that shift from the M to the D, I, and E. So much of the actual battle, so much of the actual combat took place off camera, as it were. Yeah. Yeah, we weren't getting the big descriptions that we've gotten in prior books. No. No, and, and I think it really, really helped this particular novel. It was it was important that it took place off camera because it was those other aspects that were so important. Um, I'm not sure, but this is a I, I know for certain this is at least the fourth time I've read War of Honor, and I may have read it a fifth. There are points still that I get so angry with the crap coming out of the Highridge government that I have to get up and walk away uh, from from the book for a few minutes until I cool down. And if you think about it, in a way, Haven and Manticore have traded places. Mm-hmm. Haven yes. is now Haven is now more or less the good guy, sort of, um, in, a, in a lot of ways, uh, going back to the constitutional government, though they still have to convince the rest of the universe that. And yeah. Manticore, and I don't mean Elizabeth or Anna or anyone like that, but at least under High Ridge, um, for the things that Jim, you and uh, you, JP, have said have largely become the bad guy in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a lot of role reversal. In fact, the Highridge government is trying to push the same darn policies that Haven. I mean, it was it was like, OK, we, we can try and do what Haven did, only we won't make the mistakes. It'll work for us mm-hmm. if we just spend enough money on it. Um, yeah, one of my quotes gets to that too. So yep, it's and it, that, so well, well, some of my takeaway that uh, and I, I this book was long because it was long, right? But yeah, I had the same problem um, reading. There were parts of the book that I was getting so angry at. You know, to say I'm getting angry about it was probably an <laughs> overstatement. But my frustration with what was happening was enough that I had to put it down. Yeah, so exactly. It took longer for me to read this than it would have otherwise because I was stewing over what some of these characters were doing. Uh-huh. I'm I'm sympathetic to your to your problem there, Raul. JP, I think part of the problem in our reaction is because when you look at history, there is only one way an entitled permanent bureaucracy gets removed, and we see this played out on both sides. And this is something that's historic. It's not a current events thing. It's historical across thousands of years of history. And both 
Haven and Manticore have characters that we care about a lot. And they're now yes. stuck in the middle of this mess. So yeah, it's the, the, the juxtaposition that Weber did in flipping the sides and developing the mess was really brilliantly done. And I think that frustration is that level sense of frustration was absolutely intentional by on his part, I believe. And yeah. he timed it. He, he, his sense of timing on it. And I think this is where the editing, what he's talking about with the editing, trimming it down could have helped. But even without that editing, yeah. the timing of it was well done. Yep. He knew how far he could push the reader and before, and when to give us the payoff that was needed. Um, another plot point that really, I, I just absolutely loved it. Benjamin Mayhew's determination and willingness to act. act. Uh, it's like, I've got a Navy and I'm not afraid to use it. And if you think about it, he's the real hero of the story. Manticore exists as its kingdom only because Benjamin Mayhew was solidly based enough to step in and step on Manticore's toes. Yeah. Uh, sending you and Castlet with a protector zone, then sending Matthews with home fleet. They were just the right sharp sticks in the eye to the Manticore, to the Manticorean idiocy that I needed at just the right times. Yep. Yep. And it wasn't done. Manticore wasn't totally blind to what they were doing. Just parts nope. of Manticore were blind to it. Because in fact, they are, no, well, we saw. Yeah, they were offended. Um, the Alexanders were being the allies that all of the, the Manticoran government should have been. And, mm -hmm. and so this is done with their full knowledge, but really is a, uh, I'm going to say it's an act of desperation to prevent what could be the end of Manticore. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think that was all developed and executed. Fantastic. Um, so I do Benjamin have one is last the hero, which I think is what you said that mm -hmm. made me think of that. Yeah. He is he, the hero yes. of the story. He is the hero of the story. And I'm only going to mention this in passing because we'll get more in depth into this in later books. But I, I do need, I do want to mention this sec just how damaged, and I mentioned this earlier, mm -hmm. Honor is still by that combination of the self-image, you know, due to prolong, those homely teen years before full maturity sets in, and then the very real damage caused by the North Hollow family, yeah. where relationships are concerned. Th those, two, th those two issues with her, w with the position that she's in now, you know, at the third book, it was only her career that suffered when, when those when those insecurities were played. Now it's whole star nations that suffer as a result of it. Um, and it's something that's going to be developed. We're, we're going to see some more development and in some ways we're going to see some resolution before the end of the, before the end of the stories, but it's worth mentioning now to keep an eye on. Yeah. From here, Jim, I pass it over to you. Do you have any particular quotes? All right. So my quote, ah, uh, this is uh, some fun banter between Honor and Mike. I loved this opening. The Harrington tree cats lost by a score of 11 to 2. Michelle Hankey tried valiantly to project an air of proper 
commiseration as the luxury air car swept up to the owner's box, private slip to collect her and her hostess party. Alas, her success was less than total. It isn't nice to gloat, Mike, Honor informed her with a certain severity. Gloat? Me? Gloat? Me? A peer of the Star Kingdom gloat? Just because your team got waxed while you and your friend the Colonel were so busy pointing out my abysmal ignorance to me. How could you possibly suggest that I do such a thing? Possibly because I've known you so long. And possibly because it's exactly what you'd be doing if our positions were reversed, Hanky suggested. All things are possible, Honor agreed. On the other hand, some are less likely than others, and given the strength of my own character, that one's is less than likely than most. Oh, of course, I keep forgetting what a modest, shy, and retiring type you are, Honor, Hanky said as they climbed into the limo, followed by La Follette, carrying Nimitz's mate, Samantha, and the rest of Honor's regular three-man detachment. Not shy and retiring, simply a more mature and responsible individual. Not so mature and responsible that you didn't name your team after a certain furry, six-footed celery thief and his friends, Hanky shot back, reaching out to rub the tree cat on Honor's shoulder between his ears. Nimitz and Samantha had nothing to do with my choice, Honor replied. Mind you, they approved of it, but I actually picked it as the lesser of two evils. She grimaced. It was that or the Harrington Salamanders. Hanky looked up sharply, then sputtered a half-smothered laugh. You're joking. I wish I were. As a matter of fact, the commissioner of baseball had already assigned the Salamander's name when the Owners' Committee and the Rules' Committee agreed to expand the league. I had an awful time changing their minds. Okay. Okay, that entire section, Jim, is just solid gold. Yes. Oh, yeah. It is fun. Um, it's okay. good to see them be just be the friends that they are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, all the way back, uh, the, if you... If you haven't read these books or you haven't read them in a while, you, you got to just go reread at least that section uh, just for the who's on first uh, shtick. Yes. And as well as this. Yes. It, you, it just had me rolling laughing. Absolutely. Okay. In chapter 47, the seeds of war are planted. Arnold Giancola leaned back in the comfortable chair and gazed at the short to the point message on his display. It was indeed brief and concise, and he felt a cold, unaccustomed tingle of something very like dread as he looked at it. He'd made only one, very small change in it. He deleted a single three-letter word, and for the first time, he felt a definite flicker of uncertainty. Okay, that one was... Uh, that was the seed is planted. What word? What word? Okay, for the next three. <laughs> okay, in chapter 50, war becomes inevitable. How? Pritchard demanded furiously. How could even an idiot like Hyridge have misunderstood something this simple? She pawed through the folder in front of her until she found her copy of the Republic's most recent note to the Star Kingdom. 
In response to the Star Kingdom's request for clarification as to the Republic's view of the status of the Trevor Star System, she read aloud in, in a hard, tight voice, the Republic specifically does not claim sovereignty over that system. She slammed the note back down on the tabletop. Not claim sovereignty. Walter, I fail to see how we could possibly have been any clearer than that. Yep. And, mm-hmm. yeah, and that's where you realize that, oh, <laughs> the word not was left out. Yes. Yeah. What, what an awesome, beautiful plot twist that was. All right, JP. A great setup and a great payoff. Yes, it was. <laughs> and I'm glad it didn't last any longer than three chapters. Okay. <laughs> what word? What? Oh. All right. I was uh, worried we weren't going to ever know. It was, I was it glad was, when we found out. Yeah, it was absolute genius. Genius. No, no other word for it. Mm-hmm. You're up to you, JP. All right. This first one tracks with what I've been talking about terms of foreign policy and diplomacy. Grayson's attitude toward the Star Kingdom had shifted dangerously over the last three T years. There were still immense reservoirs of gratitude, admiration, and respect for the Royal Navy, for the centrists, and especially for Queen Elizabeth herself. But there was also a deep, seething rage directed at the kingdom's current government and the arrogant fashion in which it had arbitrarily and unilaterally accepted Oscar St. Just's truce offer when unequivocal victory had been within the Alliance's grasp. That decision was widely regarded as a betrayal of all of the Star Kingdom's allies, and especially of Grayson, which had made by far the greatest contribution and sacrifices of all those allies. And then a little farther in the book, um, tying this quote to that, even though they didn't follow each other directly in the in the book. Um, then a little later in a conversation between Proctor Benjamin and Earl, uh, Whitehaven, we get the, I said, uh, Proctor protector Benjamin and Earl Whitehaven. And we talked about those two actually talking properly to each other. We get this. If they haven't decided to attack us, then drop kicking high Ridge and Janicek, assuming we could do it might be the best thing we could possibly do especially if we get it done in time to repair the worst of Janicek's blunders. But we don't think they, they'll they go quietly. And if the Star Kingdom suddenly finds itself embroiled in a major domestic political crisis, it could be the final straw needed to push Pritchard into attacking if she hasn't already committed. The Earl shrugged. Willie managed to convince Elizabeth that, under the circumstances, her best bet is to just file all of this away for now and concentrate on what we can do to prepare for a possible attack despite her government. The best possible outcome would be for all of this to blow over with no shots fired, even if High Ridge got credit for that outcome. If shots are fired, then she'll have to... Inf- uh, sorry. If shots are fired, then she'll have the information of the way they screwed the pooch on file when it comes time to form a new government. And by doing what we can quietly, behind the scenes and without any public fanfare, we may actually accomplish something good without striking the final spark of a domestic political dogfight might provide. 
Um, Benjamin frowned, then leaned back and tugged at an earlobe. I follow the logic. I'm not sure I agree with it, but your domestic situation is different from ours. And I do agree that the best possible outcome would be no shots fired. However unlikely, I think that might be. And my thoughts on that uh, are that this is just a horrible situation that these two are talking about. The, the key takeaway for me here is that the Navy will be the Navy's collectively will be the ones to pay the price, meaning naval personnel and their families. Um, you know, true for Manticore, true for the Graysons, who have found themselves in this alliance with an unpredictable or an uncontrollable ally, that being Manticore. It draws a real parallel to the Peloponnesian mm-hmm. Wars, if anybody has ever had the chance to study those. And specifically, I'm talking about when Corinth ends up dragging Athens into a war with Sparta. They they were trying not to fight. I had not even and, thought And about Corinth it. just, you know, pulls a Leroy Jenkins and goes running into the room anyway. And and war breaks out between Athens and Sparta. So here's, here's poor Grayson just trying to not only protect themselves, but try to help if they can at all as their as their ally is really just spiraling downward and potentially sparting, sparking a war that nobody wants. <laughs> back again to the back of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a quote about domestic politics, since that first one was really about foreign policy. So remember, domestic politics and, and policy directly influence diplomacy and foreign policy. And most people... Back to my comment about news in the real world, you don't get enough of those things to understand that they are directly coupled to each other. It's almost as if they're two separate and isolated things. So the quote goes like this, quite a bit of that largesse had gone very quietly to certain political action organizations, union leaders, industrialists, and financiers, siphoning those funds discreetly in the into the intended hands had been relatively easy, although it had been necessary to dress up the transfers with justifications like research grants, employment condition studies, educational subsidies, or industrial expansion incentives. The new Royal Manticoran Astrophysics Investigation Agency had been one of the most successful of those sorts of ploys. No doubt some practical good would come of it, but its real value was that it had engaged the public imagination. It was the poster child for the, quote, building the peace, end quote, campaign New Kiev had devised, and with excellent reason. After all, something like three-quarters of the Star Kingdom's prosperity rested on its carrying trade in the mammoth through traffic the Manticorn Wormhole Junction serviced. Discovering additional destinations the junction could serve could only enhance that wealth. Of course, it was also a hideously expensive undertaking, rather more so than its administrators fully realized. Highridge devoutly hoped, although 10 full percent of its budget could be neatly skimmed off the top and passed directly to various shipbuilders and consulting firms without ever being wasted on something useful, and it had become such a popular icon no one dared question its expenditures. Here and there, a few more odd 40 or $50 million transfers had disappeared completely, even without benefit of RMAIA's cloak of respectability. 
Most of them had gone through discretionary funds or payments with whose receipts could be concealed under a claim of national security, endorsed by obliging members of the intelligence community, but every or sorry, but very little of that sort of thing had actually been required. By far the largest expenditures, however, had gone into the long cherished progressive and liberal social programs. Hyridge himself regarded them as nothing more than vote buying boondoggles, and he was Certain DeCroix shared this view, whatever she might say for public consumption. But New Kiev was another matter. She truly believed that the poor of the Star Kingdom were destitute, despite the fact that the poorest of them enjoyed an effective income of at least four times that of the average citizen of their grace and allies, and somewhere around seven or eight times that of the average Havenite living in the financially ravaged republic. She and her fellow liberals were determined to build a new, fairer and more equitable star kingdom in which the indecent wealth of the moneyed class would be redistributed by government fiat since the normal operations of the marketplace seemed incapable of doing so. So that was long and probably, frankly, a little bit sterile outside of the context the longer context, but here are my thoughts about what I just read. That is absolutely gross, especially when funds are being directed to things that are known to be selfish, political, and uh, selfishly political and wasteful, rather than, and this was a part of that quote, wasted on something useful. What a, what a phrase. The security of the kingdom, which is still at war, is waved away and the threat is deliberately diminished in terms of policy to fund desired but unnecessary programs. War and public safety, notice without saying public safety, become the excuse for increasing government control of the economy and society at large. I'd mentioned this earlier, right? Both these things are happening. They should be at tension with each other, but this government is using both at the same time, which is interesting. If people notice, they're told the government is, again, from that quote, Building the peace. What makes that a part of how gross this is, is peace isn't built in this context. Foreign policy and the strength of a nation, primarily economic strength and military strength, establish and maintain peace. I'm not talking about domestic security. I'm talking about the ability for that sovereign nation to function without interference from outsiders. Uh And And war is a huge interference, by the way. Within the context of the story, remember how Haven collapsed, and Raoul, I think you brought this up earlier. After being an incredibly prosperous nation and an economic powerhouse, it was exactly this way, establishing what was publicly described as fair and equitable and things like that, in the sense the people suffered because government ruled everything in the end, to include their wealth, meaning the people's wealth, and what was a thriving standard of living eventually plummeted except for the ruling class. Then after the coup, and in the name of public safety, and even having a thing called public safety, basic rights were stripped away. So we're watching we're watching Manticore, and you said this earlier, yep. do the very same thing that they all know collectively, not literally every human being, they know was the downfall of Haven. But we'll, I don't know, we're going to do it anyway, and maybe our, we'll, they just did it wrong. We'll do it better. They did it wrong. Yeah, yeah. they didn't spend enough money. They, they, they didn't believe in it strong enough. 
but the path they're headed down is the more, if I can just more tightly control everything, mm-hmm. then it'll be even better. Like they, they tightly controlled a lot of things, but it didn't work. Well, the answer is I'll just do more, more of that more aggressively. And somehow this is supposed to work and it's, it's not gonna. And in the real world, it has never worked that kind of thing. It has just never worked. So, uh, enough of that over to you, Raul. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm getting a message. Okay. Murray just sent me a message and said, thank you for quoting me for a change. (laughs) (laughs) Who was it? One of our, one of our friends out there said I was the little Murray or something like that. Somebody made it. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I'll I'll wear that with honor. Oh, you should. Yep. But even though I, there's probably some, you know, people out there that are oh, like, that, quit. That, that, that is an excellent quote, and, and it goes straight to one of the hearts of the themes in this story, yeah. uh, particularly the consequences yes. uh, of what yes. you're doing. Yes, and, and we, early in this episode, we kicked off saying there's a lot, there's a lot of dime, but there is a shift now in the emphasis that was on the military to more of the D- and the E and and even the mm-hmm. I in here. I mean, we are not seeing the giant space battles now. We're seeing what fuels yep. the ability to have those in in a good way. And actually, one of my quotes, and it'll be my final quote, is kind of the payoff of what your quote sets up. I can't so, wait so to hear it, it. it. It's a perfect. It's a perfect step. Yes, but before we get to that, um, my my first quote is actually a pair of quotes. And it's in reference to the Salarian League as something that's going is one of the little hints dropped, but is going to be central to the second half of the saga. And the first one, I think, is just a general discussion um, about some of the actions that have been going on. And this quote reads, unlike laws and statutes, bureaucratic regulations didn't require an the item by item approval of the entire assembly, which over the centuries, had led to a gradual evolution of deeply entrenched, monolithic, enormously powerful and expensive bureaucratic empires. And then again with Captain Zachary, uh, it's mentioned, but there was an undeniable downside to their existence, even for League citizens. For one thing, the ever-growing sprawl of regulatory overreach required larger and larger bureaucracies, which in turn absorbed an ever-growing percentage of the central government's total income. That, Zachary suspected, was one reason the Salarian League Navy, for all its numerical strength and its perception of itself as the most powerful and modern fleet in existence, was probably at least 50 T years out of date compared to the RMN. Yeah. Yeah. And this actually does touch back to the quote you did, the two quotes that you've just uh, right. used as well, to be honest. But those, those they are going to policies be... fuel mm-hmm. in the end foreign policy and frankly everything else. Different quotes, but very much along the same theme. By the way, the, the, the modern day description of what that describes. And it's not an it's not a new phrase, but it's relatively new uh, in terms of the media using it. Is called the administrative state. Yep. It's the it's the burden, the administrative the bureaucracy, state. for better or worse. It is it is the cost the permanent of the bureaucracy. bureaucracy of the government to do what the government does, and because it is an art, 
you know, it's not a template. Just stamp out the government, hear all the parts, and it'll never change. That that bureaucracy tends to grow in the real world, and it then it costs more. And if you don't have a model that generates wealth in a more favorable way, what happens is the government begins to eat up the money. And the, yeah, the, the phrase for that, I don't know how many people have heard it, but uh, the modern phrase is administrative state. And, you know, it's a thing. It's just, the administrative state, the permanent bureaucracy. Yeah. Uh, more recent terms that very pejorative is the swamp, of course. Yeah, that, um, you know, one, one particular personality uses that phrase. Yep. But, uh, and, and but the, re- the administrative real state debate, or the permanent bureaucracy is really the more... Yeah. Um, there's a genuine, a, a real debate that happens about, well, what, what do we need and what do we not need? That's really where the genuine political fight happens between candidates, yeah. between parties, between, it's like, how much of this do we really need to effectively govern? And that there is no answer. I right? said, it's not a template. Mm-hmm. So that, that is a legitimate argument and fight that has to happen. But, but that's what it revolves around is yep. just this, what you quoted. Sorry. And a lot of, a lot of the, one major struggle is what do you do when that administrative state or that uh, permanent bureaucracy has taken on such a life of its own that it actually becomes the problem, not the solution? Right. How do you how how do you get away from that? And well, history's got a lot of lessons in that respect. Yes. It's got a whole lot of lessons, and I'll get to that when we get to takeaways. Um, Another quote, I've talked a lot about how damaged Donner is, but you know, in some ways there's real progress, and th- this one just struck me as, okay, yeah, I like this side of her. There, there is, she's, she is in some ways her mother's daughter. There's a little bit of her mom in her. Over the years, she'd become completely accustomed to the traditional grace and garments. She still considered them thoroughly useless for anything except looking ornamental, but She'd been forced to admit that looking ornamental wasn't necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> it's like, yeah, for all the for all the others, she's there's, there's she does have a little bit of Allison yep, in her. Mama Harrington is there, <laughs> and, and it was one of my that was one of the things that just struck me as funny. And another one that kind of falls into a little bit of Honor's humor, but done with a purpose when she meets. Robin Strange, and it's the end payoff here that really kills me every time. It's, it's almost whimsical the way she puts it. Uh, they're, they're turning over their weapons, okay, to be because of an incident, uh, an assassination attempt, uh, when she's going in to meet Robin Strange. A small compartment in the artificial limb opened, and as she closed her fist, a 30-round pulsar magazine ejected itself. She caught it in midair with her right hand while La Follette stared at her in disbelief, then smiled at Eisenhofer, who, if possible, looked even more astonished than her armsmen. Forgive me, Capitan, she said. As you may know, I've experienced more than one assassination attempt of my own. When my father helped me design my prosthesis, he suggested a few small improvements. This, she handed Eisenhofer the magazine, was one of them. She raised her hand between them and sent the, its artificial muscles another command. In response, her left finger snapped abruptly and rigidly straight, while the other hand's fingers 
folded under almost as if they were grabbing the butt of a non-existent pulsar. I'm afraid I'd have to have the tip of my finger rebuilt if I ever used it, she told him with a whimsical smile. But Daddy insisted it would be worthwhile. I see, Eisenhofer said a bit blankly. <laughs> the little bit, but referring to, yeah, to, daddy, to daddy, thought it would be, yeah. it just, yeah, I love it. Takes concealed carry to a whole new level. She doesn't carry a weapon. She is the weapon. Yep, exactly. Now, the one that is the, uh, the one that is the uh, right bookend to your left bookend in uh, the whole bit about High Ridge. And this is one of my favorite scenes of the entire series. Uh, when High Ridge has to go to Elizabeth because he has screwed up so badly. Oh, yeah. It might not be completely there with oops, but it is darn close. And this one is a little bit long, so I hope everyone will forgive me. In addition, Your Majesty, he continued, given the significance and extreme gravity of the Republic's actions and the fact that the entire Star Kingdom is now forced, however unwillingly, to take up arms again, it is my considered opinion as your Prime Minister that your government must represent the broadest possible spectrum of your subjects. An expression of unity at this critical moment must give our allies encouragement and our enemies pause. With your sovereign consent, I believe it would be in the Star Kingdom's best interest to form a government of all parties, working together to guide your subjects in this moment of crisis. I see, the Queen said yet again. In time of war, such a suggestion often has merit, she continued after a brief pause her eyes deadly as her sentences reminded him of another meeting in the same office four years before. Yet, in this instance, I think it may be premature. Hyridge's eyes widened and the merest hint of a smile touched her lips. While I am, of course, deeply gratified by your willingness to reach out to your political opponents and what you've so correctly described as a moment of crisis, I feel that it would be most unfair to burden you with possible partisan disputes within your cabinet at a moment when you must be free to concentrate on critical decisions. In addition, it would be unjust to create a situation in which you did not feel completely free to continue to make those decisions for which you, as Prime Minister, must bear ultimate responsibility. He stared at her, unable to believe what she had just said. The Constitution required him to inform her and obtain her formal consent to any proposal to form a new government. But no monarch in the entire history of the Star Kingdom had ever refused that consent once it was sought. It was unheard of, preposterous. But as he gazed into Elizabeth Winton's unflinching, flint-hard eyes, he knew it was happening anyway. She gazed back at him, her face carved from mahogany steel and he recognized her refusal to countersign his bid for political survival. There would be no coalition government, no inclusion of centrist and crown loyalists to broaden his basis of support or share in the guilt by association. Hmm. Payback's a bitch. Yep. <laughs> um, like yeah, I said, that, was... that, that is the flip side of what you had pointed out yes. earlier, JP. Yep. And like she left them hanging the actual consequence if you caught it at the very end when uh when uh, the uh, hamish when the when the alexanders were debriefing on or filling her in 
uh, the conservative association is essentially no more. It's gone. Yeah. The progressive party is essentially gone. The liberal party only managed to survive because of Kathy Montaigne. So, yep. yeah, that, those are my quotes. So it might be time for some closing thoughts. Yeah, maybe. Like, I know pickle. it is. I know it's time <laughs> for some closing thoughts. So, Jimmy, you want to kick us off? Sure. Raul, you told us there was going to be some callbacks to the last anthology we read, Changer of Worlds. <laughs> and boy, you weren't just uh, whistling Dixie on that one, man. They were all over the place. Uh, from Ms. Shipwoman Harrington, we got a reunion with her first captain, and he played a critical part in war, this book. Uh, the Changer of Worlds short story didn't have a lot of impact here, but if anything, it was the cat's decision to be involved with people despite the war. From the Highlands set up the exposure of some of the naughty things going on with the slave trade. Uh, we saw Anton and Katrin uh, solve a problem with a bang. <laughs> you have to read the book to figure that one out. <laughs> uh, just an aside note, I hope we see a lot more of Katrin in the future. She's fun. Catherine. Catherine? Yeah. Catherine. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I stand corrected. Catherine, and I'll probably do the same thing next time we talk about it. And you her. will not be disappointed, though. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, my takeaway is uh, to remember that one little word can make all the difference. Don't trust someone to do what you should do yourself. I'll tell you what. Amen. If Pritchard was not getting from Manticore what she was hoping for, she should have sent someone on her behalf in person to take care of it. And that may have avoided a whole lot of uh, strife. Okay. Mm -hmm. Passing it over to you, JP. I've mentioned things that go along with what you said, Raul, that there's been a role reversal here, you know, that Havenites sort of become the good guys in some sense, and Manticore is sort of not. But uh, I want to add some color in a little bit because there's some silly stuff going on that I thought was a really cool part of the story. We have, this is me kind of taking Manticore's perspective again, out, outside of the politics of the High Ridge government. Through the book, it it's stunning that Haven thinks they can simply rebrand and therefore should regain territory they lost in a war that they started. They don't have a right to expect that, you know, getting back these these systems that they lost. They don't have a right to expect that or to presume to dictate terms to the side that actually arguably won the war. I, I get it. Technically, the war had not ended in, until very late in the book. You, you can't lose and then somehow gracefully or patiently declare you want everything, everyone to just forget about it and you want everything back you lost. Yet that logic has them justifying in their own minds engaging in hostility again as the party that is now somehow suffering an injustice. Um, yeah, diplomacy sucks and, and it's we see it not executed well here. But the loser doesn't dictate the terms. And that's what I know had Elizabeth upset and what had the Graysons upset. And Benjamin speaking on behalf of the Allies, apparently, that had all the Allies upset. Uh, nope, sorry, Haven. That's not how it works. Manticore ended the war badly, but you did this to yourselves. And I, I, I think that's important to remember. 
you know, they quickly got on a moral high horse as if they had somehow been the offended in, in this whole thing. They started the war. They lost. Not without a lot of pain suffered on the winning side, though. In the real world, uh, just to give a, a reference, World War I ended in 1918 with a lot of strong emotions and wishful thinking. I talked about wishful thinking and policy earlier, resulting in claims that could only have failed. The best example is simply declaring it was the war to end mm -hmm. all wars. Everyone glommed on to the bumper sticker, or almost everyone. Interestingly, Germany didn't actually see it that way, even though they lost. They were required by the Treaty of Versailles to disarm, but instead secretly set out to rebuild their military capability almost before the ink was dry on the treaty. Hmm, sounds like something we might have seen in this book. Then they elected a lunatic who rapidly established a dictatorship through National Socialism as the Nazi Party came to power in 1933, and what, and what was secret became public at that point. Then they started World War II in September of 39 when they invaded Poland. World War II was a war on, scale, uh, on a scale that couldn't have been imagined in World War I. Remember, World War I was the war to end all wars. I see a real parallel here in the story of Haven, not specific personalities, but in the story of the nation. Wars start on purpose, and they're relatively easy to start, sadly. They have to end on purpose, and planning how to end and how to recognize your national goals for going to war were achieved is often very difficult. So, and you can consider these examples, you know, go back and look at them yourself. The American Revolution ended on purpose. Uh, in the context I just described, World War II ended on purpose. The Korean War did not. The first Gulf War, as it's labeled, did not end on purpose. And that one's particularly interesting in that it literally didn't end. There wasn't uh -huh. a first Gulf War, then a second, even though the media and, frankly, many even military commentators refer to it as two wars. The first one ended in a truce with conditions established to formally end the war that both sides agreed to. Iraq agreed to those conditions and then belligerently failed to meet them. And after 12 years, the war resumed. It's a convenience of policy and storytelling. I, I won't call it history to act as if those were two separate wars. It's easy for commentators to pretend they were two wars, but it was one long war with a 12 year break in the middle. Deja vu. Yeah. To break it into two wars is to make it particularly easy to paint. Uh, as a failure. So the point being, history shows us that wars end because they are ultimately and deliberately ended, usually by the victor. And, and I say that even meaning if the, if the loser loses because they simply run out of gas, run out of steam, they can't continue to wage war, uh, it, it is still the victor left standing who ultimately end, ends the war. And it's clear when that end comes. Otherwise, what usually results are awkward eras of violent peace. And I'm borrowing that phrase from a, a man named Daniel Bolger, who authored a book called Americans at War, 1975 to 1986. The subtitle is An Era of Violent Peace. So that's where I got that phrase. I'm not, I'm not creative enough to come up with it on my own. It's a good book worth reading uh, if you're a military history and policy mm -hmm. fan, by the way, it's out there still in print. So, Raoul. Okay. First takeaway is that I really wish David had been allowed the final edit of the book. 
that, that he thought it was that was needed. Uh, it's there, there's a roughness to the story that you don't find in the other books, and like you know, I've okay, I I do a lot of editing and I do a lot of writing, technical or scientific, uh, in the day job. And one of the sayings there is a good editor is worth their weight in gold because you're talking about someone who gets into your head and helps you say what you try to say even better. And if we had that, just for an example, I am certain we would have had a much smoother introduction to Anton and Kathy, for example. And part of the reason why I say that is we'll certainly see Abigail Hearns developed as she's introduced and in more in the short, both the short story and the next uh, anthology and in the future novels. That said, this is an absolutely excellent tale and it is absolutely worthy of the Honorverse franchise and, a, as a whole. Um, so more into the takeaways, the book is very much a transition story that begins to shift to the second part of the grand tale Weber had planned so long ago. Um, a bit of this is a bit, a bit of this roughness that I talked about actually was in part due to the transition added on to the fact that David had been convinced and decided to spare honor. So he's having to adjust story element uh, to get the, in order to be able to get things where he wants to go. So it, it's, th- there's reasons, there's real reasons for that. Now, it's pretty obvious that the story is about to take up with the Talbot Cluster, the Salarian League, the whole Mesa manpower genetic slavery threads. You know, we, we've been having hints dropped about those for some time now. We just have to find a solution to this Haven problem. And in a lot of ways, what we see out of Haven now, and that's what's so sad about it. What we see out of Haven right now is they should be natural allies yeah. for what's com- for what we've been having hints coming. Uh, and we have to get out of this mess, though. And it's going to be interesting to see how that happens. And boy, JP, your takeaways, you, um, you're going to love you, you're going to love it when we get around to at all costs and in particular mission of honor. Awesome. Uh, th- there's a lot of build up to get there, but what what you had pointed out is just right on the mark and going along with what you've said in a lot of ways this book has always been a troubling book for me to read uh if you know anything about actual history there is such a very very real sense of you know but for the grace of god there go i to this particular story this one, this book in particular, I've seen comments about Weber using the books to push a political agenda or BS like that. He's not. Like you said earlier, JP, he's teaching political philosophy, and it's based on centuries, if, if not millennia, of solid historical evidence. And that's part of what the reason why stories written, I mean, some of these stories were are 30 years old. And you still see solid yeah. relevance to them today. It, it's it's history, it's philosophy that he's teaching us in the telling of a wonderful story while he's going on. And at, at the end of it, th- those are my big closing thoughts and my takeaways from it. Uh, so get ready. You're going to see 
a lot more in with the shifts and that kind of teaching going forward. So we have really been going on long with this one, but like I said, it's the longest book of the series, but I think we're about at the point where we need to give some ratings. Okay. Jim, do you want to go first? I will start. All right. Um, I'm going to rate this five three-letter words. <laughs> As opposed to four-letter words. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm, I'll go next, and I'm going to give the book a four, and it's, it's probably because of a reason that had to do with the lack of a final edit. Uh, there was a particularly overused phrase, or a particular phrase that was horribly overused, in this book, I'm not going to say what it is, but it was a, for me, it was a phenomenal distraction to the story. And uh, when we're done, when we're done recording, I'll, I'll, I'll tell my friends, my, my, my host friends, what it is if they want to know. But <laughs> there, it, it took me out of the story. I'll just leave it at that. I, mm-hmm. for people who don't think they know what that is, I don't want to. I don't want to draw attention to something that they that they didn't see because it could just be my problem so i'm not going to say what it is raul how about you i also have to rate this as a four which is for me it's kind of sad because it didn't need to be a four since this is a five stock of celery story (laughs) (laughs) clever (laughs) well and oh go ahead someone did the math yes that gives us an overall rating of 4.33, and comparing our rating with others, Goodreads is at 4.13, with 13,014 ratings, and Amazon comes in at a 4.5, 4.5, with 3,095 ratings. So we're right oh, in the middle of that. Right. We're between them. That's cool. Yep. Yeah. So, so what happens next? What happens next? Well, on our next very exciting episode, we will be looking at... (laughs) (laughs) No, it isn't. (laughs) Because I stole that from the adventures of Chicken Man. (laughs) (laughs) It was a blast from the past. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, gosh. If you remember the adventures of Chicken Man, you are officially old. I do. So, well, (laughs) I I always remember, well, did you, uh, what was something about Mick Jagger? I love the guy. The announcer's voice was pure gold. I wish I could do that. All right. Anyway, uh, Worlds of Honor book four, The Service of the Sword, which is another anthology, including these entries, Promised Land by Jane Jane Linskold. With One Stone by Timothy Zahn, A Ship Named Francis by John Ringo and Victor Mitchell, Let's Go to Prague by John Ringo, Fanatic by Eric Flint, which is a sequel to From the Highlands, uh, a loose sequel to From the Highlands, I should say. And read it. I'm just focused on Eric Flint, I think. Yeah. We get get more from him. Cool. Uh Uh-huh. And... Ending out with uh, The Service of the Sword by David Weber. So that's what we'll be looking at next time. About- and I can point out that if you are one of the people who really hate short stories and just want to focus on 
the ones you have to have to read. Promised Land and Service of the Sword would be those, but it, it's a good anthology overall. Yeah, well, a few of these stories, by no definition, could be considered short stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They, uh, Service of the Sword and Promised Land being two of them, at least. Yeah, these are these are some longer stories. but The Norfellas. Yeah. Um, so, and uh, do we have any shout-outs? Uh, absolutely, yes, we do. Uh, first of all, as usual, uh, Baz and Conrad, if, you know, just continue to keep uh, writing to us. Awesome. I do want to. Uh, I do want to say a hello to Zachary uh, Rafato, who had been a listener, but just because of scheduling and reading catch up, had put aside the uh, podcast and the books for a bit, and is back uh, coming along with us as well. Nice. So, welcome back, sir. And we've got a new contact from uh, Chris Cannon, who has. At this point uh, of the reading is uh, up to episode eight. Uh, he's now reading uh, more than honor to be. He, he's now reading more than honor, and he loved beautiful friendship. Uh, his, his his comment: "A beautiful friendship was awesome, though the room must have been more dusty than I thought. There were tears in my <laughs> eyes by the end." Awesome. So, and he thanks us for leading him into uh, reading the books. Mm. So, for for those who been pushing off on the short stories on the anthologies it, they're worth it they're really worth it yeah anyone uh, have anything else they want to call out or shout out no certainly to, JP? to hank oh yes oh of course we want to thank hank davis and his tp network for hosting this podcast uh check out his fun and informative podcasts at tpnetwork.com Yes, please. And we also want to shout out and thank, uh, well, David Weber for writing the books and Bain well, of Publishing course. for publishing yeah. them. Very much, of course. Of course. Lots of fun. All right. Well, that about wraps it up. Uh, this, this, I knew this was going to be a longer one. Well, it was a longer book. It was, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was a longer book, and this could have easily gone a lot longer. Oh, yeah. But I had a blast, as always, guys. Yeah, but that too. said, it is getting late, and we do need to say goodnight. All right. Well, say goodnight, JP. Goodnight, JP. So long, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Honorverse Today. We welcome your feedback. Email us at honorverse at tpenetwork.com. We are a proud part of TPE Network. Visit us on the web at honorverse.net, on social media, or tpenetwork.com. You can subscribe to Honorverse today by visiting tpenetwork.com slash subscribe. Visit TPE Network for the very best in podcasting. Opinions expressed in the show are solely those of the hosts. They do not reflect the opinions or views of Bain Books, the authors, or TPE Network. Visit Bain.com for the best in science fiction. Many of their books are available from the Bain Free Library found at their site.
Theme music is Honor and Sword by Zakar Valaha. Check his website found in the show notes for all your podcasting music needs. Thank you.